0: Hello and welcome to episode 212 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Today, we welcome Ted Leo from Chisel. You may know Ted or Ted Leo and the pharmacist, or you're wondering what Ted is doing on the podcast. We are deep in our Numero Group 20 celebration, and if you've heard the last episode with John Dugan and Chisel, Ted is the guitar player and singer and has a great history in hardcore in the new york city area and going to shows at abc no Rio among others and we talk about those days his thoughts on emo the early 2000s scene in new york city and how special this upcoming set you free reissue and shows with Numero group means to him ted was an absolute blast to chat with and you will wonder where the time went as we weave stories and moments together that at one point says he's never had in any other interview a true honor to have this DIY legend on the podcast and couldn't have been happier to have it. Line up with Numero groups, reissue of Set You Free and Chisels Upcoming Shows. Thank you all the Patreon supporters out there. I am able to handle a lot of the day-to-day thanks to those that support me on that platform and it really keeps this podcast alive. If you want to support, head on over to patreon.com slash washed up emo. Thanks in order to Double Elvis. Their podcast network has the best podcasts out there and I'm proud to be part of their network. Learn about their award-winning podcast at doubleelvis.com. This is episode 212 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with Ted Leo.
1: I can't call you up, can't think of what to say.
2: My name is Ted Leo. It is January 12th, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. 2023. And I am in New Jersey, just outside of New York City.
0: Thanks for coming on. Um, I think it is awesome to have you and um, hear sort of some of the, you know, punk and hardcore roots of yourself. And then we can talk about chisel and some of the other stuff that you're doing. And then the, 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 re, the, the shows and the, um, the new, new packaging from numero group, which is amazing. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's a really easy one to ask, like, how did you find something or how did you find music that wasn't on the radio, the punk, the DIY stuff?
2: I was born in 1970 and so you know I was um not a baby when uh punk you know broke the first time <laughs> right and uh, and uh and I was paying attention to to popular music. I was listening to the radio, I was buying records i was I was very into music and um and I have distinct memory of hearing uh the Ramones rock and roll radio which you know obviously like wasn't their first record but hearing that on the radio and um being intrigued by it and uh seeing a lot of stuff that you know may not have been as much on the radio but was on very early mtv and the things that preceded mtv like friday night videos and a lot of the Mm -hmm. um
0: public access
2: pre- yeah, pre-cable, like public access, you know, video channels. Um, the Uncle Floyd show in, in uh, New Jersey had had a lot of punk bands on. Um, you can find a lot of it on YouTube. And I took all that stuff in, um, you know, and and uh, given the, the, the main theme of, of our interview, which is Chisel, which had its, you know, kind of mod bent, um, the jam was like a very early band in that vein that i remember um hearing and uh, seeing early videos by you know when they were still around i didn't get to go see a lot of shows back then because i was only 10 you know whatever mm-hmm. but but i did go see adam and the ants um there was a lot of stuff that came through that um you know my, my parents were super young so they were both like in some ways like terrible parents and and in not you know in like not parenting me with with a ton of care in certain regards but which also you know wound up being like good and that they let me do things that i'm sure kids today would never be able to do when i was 10 you know and things like that so um that was what got me into it first i took a i took a really hard um and like all-encompassing not all-encompassing but i stopped paying attention to like Uh, a lot of current punk stuff. I I stopped digging for like current punk stuff in the early 80s when I got really into um, hip hop for a couple of years. And then I swung back around again um, still, you know, early mid 80s when and this goes to your question about the relationship, like the person who, you know, who kind of helps you along the way. Because up to that point, it had been kind of Autodidactic, you know, for me, like really just seeking and finding things on my own. But um, the local radio station, which still exists now it's in Jersey City, WFMU, was at the time in East Orange, New Jersey, and their studio was really close to where I grew up. And I kind of, became, I don't remember exactly how I became aware of this, but I found the the punk show like the classic punk show of the entire you know of the new york area which was a guy named pat duncan um who used to do do this long show on thursday nights and um i think i literally just stumbled across it and then you know in high school um just you know you just start trading tapes of people you realize that like there are a couple of weird people who are into the same stuff you are and in my high school um we had a lot of people who went on to do like notable stuff in bands um who well there was a band there was a new jersey hardcore band called um american standard and some of those guys went on to be like writers and the drummer jay is now like a like a uh like i literally think he plays with like like live with like taylor swift and stuff like he's kind of like a you know not a session drummer but like a hired drummer you know um there's uh matt sweeney who um was in a band called skunk back then and then most people know him from chavez and he uh oh right played with played with guy by voices and a lot of other people um he was a year older than me in high school um Another person my same year, um, this guy, uh, God, I forget his last name, which is ridiculous. Uh, Bob Russell. Bob Russell was in a hardcore band called Lethal Aggression, who were pretty well known in the New York area. Um, uh, Chris Infante, who was the first bass player from Chisel. Um, yeah, there are more. Like, just It was a weird, fertile fertile year the or fertile few years the the mid 80s um in my high school weirdly you know and so we we had like we had a crew that um could talk about this stuff you know it wasn't just people you saw at the record store or at shows or whatever like we had a crew that could talk about it in school Wow. <laughs> trade stories and records and stuff and, and can that was you,
0: good can you talk about that more like what were some of those things that you remember was it zines was it trading tapes was it mm. meeting at the record store just it's so interesting now that you and i can search youtube and find stuff but i think yeah. that time period like i'm used to the 90s which felt a little bit i i had internet but it wasn't yeah. like it was but i just can you paint that picture with you, you with your buddies that you found and you started sure. to hang.
2: yeah so I mean first of all going to shows yes there were zines but there were also you know the bands that were playing would have demos and sometimes records but other other people who were in bands would like kind of always have something on them too so if you got introduced to somebody and you know they're like oh yeah you know this person plays in a band like, yeah, you want my demo? You know, you're like, yeah. You know, so he would just kind of like get, you know, get and trade a lot of stuff like that. And and back then it was still like, you know, it was still CBGBs um, having night shows that a lot of us couldn't go to, but the hardcore matinees uh, um, on Sundays that a lot of us could. And um, some other places in New Jersey, uh, City Gardens and Trenton. Uh, places in Hoboken, Maxwell's you couldn't always get into but sometimes you could Um, and uh, you know like the kind of more like VFW Hall, like Elks Club kind of stuff and then the late 80s the the pipeline was a club in Newark that um, had a lot of shows, there was a metal club down the street um, called Studio One that had a lot of like crossover shows. Um, there was a place out in Randolph, New Jersey, called uh, Dreamers with a Z I think, that um, <laughs> that actually had a lot of hardcore shows. And then there were like there were other places in Brooklyn and Long Island, Lemoore, and stuff like that, where there were like metal hardcore shows. Um, you know, some of the the original original punk and hardcore clubs in New York, Maxis Kansas City, and all those like they were dying. And there weren't really a lot of shows there anymore. Um, but CBGB's was a place called Downtown Beirut that um, had shows. Yeah, you know, like you, so you would just, you would just go to shows, you'd get the calendar, you know, people would be hand out flyers, hand out calendars, you know, et cetera. And, um, and you, you know, you'd maybe go to see one band or sometimes you would just go because you knew it was a punk show and you would get turned on to bands either by the other bands that were playing or because, you know, you just showed up and you didn't know anybody was playing. Um, what was yes, that? Yes, there were zines. Oh, so, go ahead. So, yeah. know, just
0: I think listing off all those shows, hearing about Lemours or hearing about City Gardens and and Seabees and Maxwell's. Did you kind of realize, like, oh my god, I have act like there's a bunch of places to go, or was it this is just the world that I'm in? I, I grew up in a place that um, there was one place, right? And you've got right. all no, these. It kind- was
2: just. The- it was just the world that it was just literally just like the world that I was in. That's... And I think that, you know, being part of the New York scene in particular was was lucky also because people from other parts of the country, obviously, everybody, you know, like
0: everyone. Came one of the through. things that's.
2: Yeah, exactly. Like one of the things that sucks about New York is that you can get complacent in the fact that everybody wants to come through to play New York. You know, right. so like, you know, you get a little eventually like, I you know, people get a little snooty. Mm, yeah i'm not gonna go see them this time you know or whatever you know and um but uh but you know i think i even felt connected to the other scenes that at first we were just buying records from discord world or the boston hardcore scene but eventually those bands come through and they're kids like you you know and they're maybe like a couple of years older than you so you know, you can talk, and they are there to hang out and talk too. You know, so you you develop those connections in the old way, just by like going and and meeting people, and then all of a sudden you feel connected to this nationwide and eventually like global scene um, through actual personal relationships, not parasocial.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, totally. <laughs> um, internet you, relationships. You was know, it? So, yeah. Was it? What? resonated most? Because I I mean, those shows, like you said, crossover, I think that's a great way of putting it where there's different music happening the same night. What things started yeah. to resonate with you? Was it the hardcore scene? Was it was it was it? Punk? I
2: was, yeah, I mean, I was hugely into the hardcore scene um, in high school. And, you know, for me, that also meant punk. I mean, it's like there wasn't, you know, like, there, there was starting to be a differentiation, but I don't even think I made that differentiation in my own head until a little bit later when I got really tired of a lot of the shit in the hardcore scene in right. particular, you know, when it had kind of like really got like too violent, too macho, too youth crewy. And I was, I stopped seeing the good things about punk in it. You know? <laughs> That's when I started to understand that like, okay, there's more of a difference here than, than maybe at first I, I understood there. Uh, What stuff like
0: what bands were kind of like before it got like I totally get what you mean I I I felt that's why I got into post hardcore because I couldn't take I couldn't take God bless youth of today I just couldn't take it anymore Um, What were some of the bands for you
2: I mean that I liked or that were you know kind of where it got off putting
0: Um, That you liked early on
2: Yeah, well you know I mean in that scene in that the tough you know side of the New York hardcore scene, I mean, just like, just get that first revelation, um, New York hardcore, the way it is comp that came out in 87 or 88. And, um, I mean, those were the bands, like those are the bands that you were seeing all the time, you know, with the addition of maybe like Reagan youth or something, those are the bands that were playing at CBGBs. Those are the bands that were playing the squats. Those are the bands that were playing, you know, in the summer, like sometimes at the band shell in Tompkins square park, you know, those were, those were the bands you saw Warzone all the time, you saw Gorilla Biscuits <laughs> all the time, you know? And, um, and I loved those bands. I really did. It was, um, and this is not even really like a reflection on the, on the bands themselves as much, but um, it was at a Gorilla Biscuits, the show, which if I remember correctly, was like a record release for their LP, the start today LP at CB's where the pit was just like, there was literally like a kid swinging a hammer in the pit at a fucking gorilla biscuit show, you know? And I was just like, this is no longer for me. You wow. Know? Like I can't, you know, like I, this is just dumb. Like this is just really, it, it's not enjoyable, you know? And, and, uh, I know I'm not the only person who felt that way. And there was also like, you know, you started to, a lot of people started to get a lot of people who had, more in common with the kind of lefty side of punk um, started to get disenchanted with a lot of the misogyny and, you know, macho stuff that went along, that started to really, started to come along with a lot of the youth crew stuff at the time. Right. You know, that's when ABC No Rio started happening is because... Really? You know, yeah, because some people, you know, uh, really wanted a new place to go and not have to deal with that stuff and, have you know, Can not you have to book those kinds of bands and etc.
0: Could yeah. you explain that more for me? Because I I just, I, I never, I think I went, wait, when did it close? I feel like I went a bunch when I first moved to New York. Anyway, I'm sure I mean, I, there was...
2: They were, doing- they were still having shows. I mean, I, they they closed for like construction, but I th- don't think it's ever really stopped having shows. The the original group of people you know who were involved in putting the shows on when I first started hanging around there, some of them are actually still there doing it. There's this guy, a Snyder, S-N-I, but with an E in front, a Snyder, who um, was in a band called Huas Pongo, H-U-A-S. I P U N G O who I think was like he, I think he was still booking bands there until like really recently. Um, but okay. yeah, you know, yeah, it was just like a lot of, a lot of, it was, it was, a, you know, ABC No Rio predated these punk shows as an art space, a Lower East art space. And, you know, they opened their doors um, to first having shows in their basement, which was literally like, like construction debris, like rubble, you know, <laughs> it wasn't wow. like, there wasn't really like a stage or PA or anything. And then, you know, th- it became a thing. And then like, they got some money from that to like fix the basement. And then that became more of a thing. And then they got some money to, like fix up the upstairs, you know, and et cetera, you know?
0: Yeah. So what? So you going to the ABC New Real girl? Can you talk about sort of the you guys in that or guys meaning guys and girls whoever um, were there yeah. feeling like this is different. We're gonna try to we're gonna kind of support something else and yeah, that's what it was. It was
2: explicit. Yeah, I mean it was explicit. It wasn't like yeah this is a vibe we all had. No, it was like explicit. Like you know it was a it was it was an explicit attempt to not book any racist homophobic misogynist music you know, <laughs> and to not like to have a space that didn't tolerate that stuff. And this is in like 89, you know, wow. When, when it really got, got going. Um, and it was a, it was a haven for a, a coming back together of a lot of like hardcore kids and a lot of the crust punk scene, you know, which, which had like diverged earlier in the decade mm-hmm. because of a lot of that stuff, you know? Um, and there were adjacent places that had shows with all the similar bands. Like there was a squat called Squatter Rot, and they had an outdoor space called Squat the Lot <laughs> <laughs> um, that would, you know, do shows in the summer. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah.
0: What were some of the bands that you saw?
2: Well, a lot of the the local bands, the people who were part of the scene were... Um, uh, born against the band that I was in at the time called Seasons arrest. Another band I was in called animal crackers, um, Rorschach, which, uh, the you know, singer was Charles Maggio who ran the Gern Blanston label who put out all the chisel records. Right. originally. Um, chisel actually played there back then in, in an early form. Um, and, uh, some of the other great, like, I mean, there was some, I saw some, Epic, epic shows there. Like Animal Crackers played our first show at ABC with Neurosis and MDC and Downfall, which was Tim Armstrong's band between Op Ivy and Rancid. What? Yeah.
1: Holy yeah, it was great.
2: shit! It was amazing. It was
0: really. What did that sound like? Quite- quite
2: a show uh like Op, i've been rested
0: <laughs> i'm joking sorry it was a joke <laughs> okay <laughs> right. oh that's a maze and to have neurosis <laughs> on the pill
1: yeah
2: yeah early neurosis yeah and late mdc and you know like a funny story just about like aging and talking about all this is that um you know at the time i remember thinking like god mdc like what are like boy they're they're so old, like this must be a real cash in, you know, for them, like, you know, they, like, you know, looking like it only took me like a year after the fact to be like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, <laughs> they'd been a band for maybe 10 years at that point, like they were maybe pushing 30 years old, like,
1: <laughs> you know,
2: like what, you know, like, I've already been in the pharmacist for over 20 years, you know, like, right. It's like, you know, and I, I actually did have a conversation with them at that show where they were like, yeah, well, you know, from here that, you know, the, the, the Eastern Bloc had just opened up, you know, the, the Berlin wall had just come down and they were like, yeah, we're going on a tour of, um, uh, you know, former Soviet Union states right now, like, you know, out to like Mongolia or something. I was like, what? Holy shit. Wow. Okay. I take back, you know, any, yeah. <laughs> any questions I had about like, you know, your motivations or anything. Yeah.
0: That's really cool.
2: Can't imagine what that was like. I actually never ran into them again after that. So I never got a chance to ask him how, how it went, but I imagine touring like, you know, Asian Russia in 1989 or 90 or whatever it was like, what must have been insane.
0: Yeah. Wow. So for, from that, was there, it, for you personally, was it, um, you know, playing in bands, I'm going to shows like were this, was there any other, was it, that was my environment or did you have other goals that you were thinking about?
1: Well,
2: I was in college. Um, I hated it. I think that, um, you know, with the exception of, of, you know, forming this this band that you know meant enough to some people that were reforming after twenty-five years. Um I don't I I would say that my college years were the worst years of my life. I hated Notre Dame with a passion. Um I was in at that point, you know I'd been in Catholic school since first grade and um, I, you know, I hadn't, I had not had, I'd had, I mean, you can read about this elsewhere. Cause I'm, <laughs> I'm not like, it's not something I don't talk about, but I, I, you know, I had, I had a lot of problems and I had had, there was some stuff that happened in my youth that was kind of psychologically coming to
1: mm-hmm.
2: rear its head in my life. And, um, i resent that place to tell you the truth to this day i'm now 52 years old and i fucking resent that place because i think that i pretty obviously needed a lot of help and instead i got rejection for being a shaven-headed freak you know fly in their buttermilk at that school um yeah, yeah yeah and um you know, my only goal, but I didn't have like, you know, it sounds a little bit like, you know, Oh, you went to, the you know, like, yeah, I went to Catholic school. Like I went to Catholic school my whole life. And that was kind of a shoot that had been laid out for me. Like my parents were the first kids in their families to have gone to college, you know?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So there was a lot, there was a lot of weight on me to like do that, you know, go through that shoot. Um, and I shouldn't have been there. You know, what I mean that's that's the truth of the matter. Like I shouldn't have been there. So and yet I had like <laughs> I had a lot of like feelings of responsibility to my parents and like you know, fucking Catholic guilt. Yeah you know, to, I am also a
0: I am also a recovering Catholic, so yeah. Yeah. All right, yeah. Yes, so
2: I got you, you know, to, to finish it, you know, to at least like finish it, at totally. least like put in the work and finish it. Um, and I, I, I took a, you know, I took some time off and I just worked and, and, um, and was still playing in a couple of bands, you know, around here, but I eventually did go back and finish it. But I bring that up because when you ask me, like, did I have any other goals or anything? Like, I don't know. Like, I really don't know. You know, I, it's like that question when people say like, when did you know you were going to be a musician? You know, and I don't have an answer to yeah, that.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got you. Because
2: I... Yeah. Like I just, you know, like I was just kind of going along, like this is what I gravitated to and I had some competing goals. Like there were a couple of bands that I was in that I actually didn't go on like great European tours with because I I had to stay here and work, you know, while I was out of school or because I had to go back to school, you know? Um, And my goals were like competing in that regard, because I really did want to like finish this, that seg- that segment of my life
1: mm-hmm.
2: up in hopes that I could, you know, slough off some of the guilt and responsibility and at least say that like I had done, I had done this, you know, I did it. I did my best at it than I completed it. Um But at the same time, like there's no question, especially with hindsight that I was, you know, <laughs> Anybody with who, anybody who wanted to, like, give me any empathy at all could have seen how strongly I was gravitating to this other thing, you know? Right. Um, but I just kept gravitating towards it. Like, I never made a snap decision, you know? It was just like, I, you know, it was always something that I was doing along with everything else that I was doing. And then it just became, you know, once I was... I guess like once I was once nobody was suggesting that I don't do it anymore I was able you know I, I just did it more you know? so yeah and like, that literally leads us to today
0: no that's it Ted it's just interesting you mention it that way from a I mean, I think if I'm not, I'm trying not to assume, but from like a Catholic standpoint, I felt that same way of just, I have to finish this. I have to do this thing. And, and it was this, I don't know. it, It was, I've just, when you said pressure, I'm like, that's exactly how I felt. Like I, even if it doesn't feel good, you're supposed to finish. And yeah, that's not yeah, the right, yeah. that's not what's supposed to happen. Like now you understand right. that, but then it was like, I have to do this regardless of how shit I feel.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, literally, you know, like, I mean, this is, this is also being coy to a certain degree, but I mean, it is literally like, you're like, Hey, you know, Jesus died on the cross, man. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, yeah, He's been hanging on that thing in every room I've ever been in, in my life for the last 20, whatever years, you know, like, I could at least finish this out,
0: you know. <laughs> mhm. Yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. It, I was dealing with that you know, with someone like a few weeks ago about that, just that same sort of feeling connected. So the reason I brought it up sort of just the goals of thing is like the DIY and the punk thing has stayed with me. Even if I'm been I've been at a a big record label working or dealing with someone on the street, it sort of stayed with me. And when John mentioned the sort of ABC no Rio, that really got me excited to kind of hear how that stayed with you. And, um, like just sort of from making music or even just, just in life. And um, that's what I meant. Sort of you're in there and you kind of see these people being creative in ways you haven't seen. That's how I felt when I went to a punk, you know, like a DIY space. I'm like, there's someone that's really good at doing food, not bombs. Like what the hell Mm -hmm. is that? (laughs) You know, (laughs) or this distro. Like, did you feel that? I
2: did. And I'll put an even finer point. On it for you. I, I remember, um, kind of after Chisel, actually. Um, I did this band in the late '90s called the Sin Eaters. That was that was a return to more like, you know, aggressive and, and overtly political, you know, post punk, punk, uh, post hardcore for me. And um, and one of the things I remember thinking about in that time because we played almost entirely only DIY spaces. We, um, you know, we, we were a pretty short lived band. Um, oddly enough, we spent most of, we played most of our shows in Europe during that time. And it was, you know, it was all youth, youth centers and squats and and things like that. And, and I did get a very good sense of, of something that I think you, you alluded to there, which is that one thing that I was getting a little dejected with in the States was, you know, post Nirvana, I think there was a big drive. And I'm not like I'm not trying to gatekeep or like, you know, police what anybody should do, but I do think there was a big drive again for like everybody should start a band, you know, everybody should have a zine. Everybody should <laughs> do, you know, one of these sort of top line things. And then I remember going to all these like these like you know, really like well functioning youth centers and squats around Europe and, you know, granted, a lot of the youth centers get government funding, which we don't get here, but still you started to see more than I was seeing at that point in time. And it reminded me more of these earlier, you know, late eighties, early nineties years, you started to see more of, um, people, people finding different roles to play in a functioning alternative, space that actually operated really well and, and actually offered you, you know, for the most part, you know, as much as one, as much as one can offer a, you know, a truly like collective, uh, anti-capitalist, you know, etc. cetera, kind of, um, organizing space. Um, you, I was seeing that, I was seeing that over there and um and it got me thinking it got me thinking a lot more about and it's part of what actually like i mean i kind of stopped playing music for i mean it wound up being like a really brief period to be honest with you like almost hilariously brief for me to even even mention it but i did start thinking about exactly that like i'd gotten really frustrated being in bands i gotten frustrated with the you know the game of it all the grind of it all Mm -hmm. And um, and I pulled back and when I pulled back, I, I guess like I mean, what's not you know, what's not a joke about it is that that's why I started playing solo. It was really just because I didn't want to stop playing music, but I didn't want to do this other thing anymore. You know, I wanted to like I wanted to like hang out and encounter people in different ways and think about different Ways that, you know, maybe I have a different role to contribute here. Or Maybe we can, like, start talking about building different kinds of spaces here where not everybody is kind of playing the same game of, like, getting noticed in the same way, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, what year you know, was saying that, that uh, this would have been, like, this would have been, like, 98 to, say, like, 2001. Yeah. Um, You know, everything did change once look out um approached me about putting out records and i just like i made a record that actually like connected in a way that nothing i'd ever done wow before had and all of a sudden i (laughs) i mean all of a sudden i was back in the game right you know which is alternately like alternately um exciting and frustrating still but yeah i was back in it You know.
0: But that that sort of p- push and pull of, um, I, I guess for me, I like the ride up. I like watching. I like supporting yeah. something on the way up, and then it gets to a certain yeah. point, and I'm over it, and I'm ready to go back down to the bottom. <laughs> mm. I don't know. Yeah, if- I mean, I
2: think that's a good way of putting it, and I, I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, it's like, and I mean, look, not to put not to put you know too much more weight on the Catholic thing, but like, there's that's not not connected. You know, like this kind of like the struggle, you know, the the struggle is is as important as the end result in some ways. And and that shouldn't be. But it is, you know.
0: Yeah. I'm so glad I have someone else to uh commiserate about that. I've said that before. People <laughs> are like, "What are you talking about?" I'm like,
2: <laughs> "Oh yeah. I'll talk about that all night with you."
0: Man. <laughs> um, no, I just I I I love, you know, the the history of, you know, where you were and being able to be exposed to that type of music and I think it's I think it's worth bringing up, you know, chisel at this moment and right. sort of that that time period and what music you were making. And it was interesting talking to John, explain it, and how it kind of came from all these different places. And just love to hear how, you know, that that came together from a three piece. And you said, I mean, he mentioned the jam as well, but taking stuff from punk, indie rock, from Brit, Mod, it seemed to be an interesting mm-hmm. um, pot that you guys were playing in
2: yeah i mean for me chisel kind of has three distinct eras for me personally not i mean i think they do map with what the what the band sounds like at the time but like just speaking purely what was going on in my head at the time um uh just to take like the middle era first Mm -hmm. which would be you know the kind of like nothing new 8 a.m all day um records um That was a time period when I was um, like, I was, I was finally feeling like youthful and alive. And I was actually interested in, in writing some more exuberant music that was, you know, that flirted with like imagery and, um, and, and even like rock tropes that were so fun and exhilarating to play but weren't necessarily um accepted in like punk and hardcore anymore i think we got away with it because i think that we still played them because we're hardcore kids like we still played them with that energy so like right you know we would play hardcore shows and people would be like oh they're the melodic hardcore band or we would play indie rock shows and they'd be like oh they're the really energetic indie rock band you know like we we were able to kind of straddle a lot of um a lot of uh, rifts you know and, and yeah. have a have, have a few feet in the, in different worlds um but then going back to the going back to i think the earlier period when John and I first started playing together we were we were just doing a two piece thing pretty briefly but Um, and, you know, obviously like we started out mostly with covers, but it was stuff that I think you can, you can see was informing where we wanted to go. Cause I remember like our very first, like the very first set that we put together, I'm not, I don't remember every song, but I can tell you off the top of my head, we played standards by the jam. We played, um, that's how I escaped my, no. We played. We played "Academy Fight Song" by Mission of Burma. We played. Uh, we played.
0: Um, John mentioned Buffalo we Tom. We played "Salad
2: Days." We played "Salad Days" off the, you know, the Minor Threat.
0: Yeah, and then, no, and but then
2: when we started, when we got a bass player and we started playing more stuff, yeah, we did a couple of Buffalo, or maybe one Buffalo Tom cover. Um, impossible by Buffalo Tom, we were consuming college radio at that point too, Mm -hmm. which um, in New New York, and I think also to a degree in DC for John, like there wasn't that kind of, that kind of like indie rock college radio that, you know, surprisingly, you know, that existed um, elsewhere. Like, WFMU didn't play a lot of indie rock, like WNYU didn't play a lot of indie rock. Um, you had to go out a little further. Like I can't get the, I could never get the Princeton station where I lived. It doesn't reach up here, but WPRB in Princeton was a place that played a lot of indie rock. You know, um, you know, later I, I would know about like, you know, Homestead Records and like Lawrence, Kansas, you know, it's mm-hmm. like big indie rock out there, you know? Um, but it but i had to get to college before i got exposed to a lot of that wow um you know and uh and um yeah it was really just like you know punk and and hardcore and 80s like 80s alternative music which is not necessarily the same thing like you know obviously like i you know i knew what the, a lot of like post punk alternative radio bands were whether it was like Echo and the Bunnymen or Susan the Benchies or, you know, et cetera, like that stuff we all knew obviously. But, um, but yeah, punk ska, reggae, hardcore, you know, like,
0: yeah, that
2: was my, that was my diet. And, um, and it took getting to college to like hear this other stuff that, that, you know, ticked a lot of boxes for me. It set off a lot of synapses for me. The early Buffalo Tom, still any buffalo tom stuff really i mean i I remain a fan of theirs but like they're so great in combining volume and melody you know and um i love that yeah (laughs) i love the who you know i love the beatles as well you know and i loved uh you know discharge you know so you know i went to college in 88 and um uh i worked at the station and at first um myself and Chris Infante, who was the first, you know, I went to high school with and was also the first bass player in Chisel. We did a hardcore show on the station. Um, They didn't actually have a hardcore uh, show at that point. Um, But, but, you know, you're there long enough and, yeah, you get exposed to other stuff and you meet other people. I think a cool thing about that for me was, like, even before I met John, uh, who came in the next year, like, that first year I met other people at the radio station who – liked hardcore like there are a lot of people from Chicago you know who who go to Notre Dame as well there are a lot of people from Chicago world there who were already kind of post-hardcore because that's what Chicago was you know (laughs) as opposed to New York which is like in the throes of of youth grew at the time like Chicago was already like you know naked ray gun and big black and you know all that stuff and um and I met a lot of Chicago people who turned me on to loud Aggressive and melodic music that was not hardcore anymore. Um, I would be fr- I'd get to be friends with them. I'd go hang out at the station while they're doing their shows. I'd hear what they're playing, you know. So I would I would hear um, Chicago Chicago bands like Wreck and later Tar, you know, or even even Big Black for that matter. Um, there was a band called Green. Uh, who was from Chicago? Who actually came and played Notre Dame a bunch of times that my first year there? Who were, you know, they're very like replacements, mud ish, and a lot of that sub pop stuff. Also um, pre Nirvana, obviously. Though when the first Nirvana record came out, we all absolutely loved that as well. Um, and uh, and then the stuff that you know kind of is more is a little more canon. But um, but I that doesn't mean I consider it any anything lesser. Like you know, Dinosaur Jr. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming into Dinosaur Jr. Um, with You're Living All Over Me. Like they were a hugely mysterious and exciting band. I knew Sonic Youth and I liked Sonic Youth, um, but it you know, but Dinosaur Jr. did it for me more back then because I think they were a little more you know, they were a little more cohesive in their songwriting, honestly, but they were still like weird, weird with like quieter vocals. And, you know, like it, uh, it, that was like exciting and felt like it actually felt like a little more grown up you know, in a way, like a little more, a little more adult, even though I'm sure they were, they're literally like two years older than me.
0: It still counts as adults when you see someone. Yeah,
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's true.
0: That's cool. Um, and then, so again, playing music, playing those shows early on, um, now is now is the three piece. How did you um, start to feel like okay, these these songs are kind of coming together? Or like you said earlier, I'm I'm, I'm finally right. feeling like these are making sense.
2: Well, I think that interestingly, especially given my later association with Lookout, like what what clicked for us was a lot of what was going on in the Bay Area at the time, because out there, I feel like there were a lot of bands who were doing more melodic stuff, you know, and, and some of them were on lookout. Some of them were not, but you know, op Ivy would be mm-hmm. one of those bands that like, if you scanned my brain in 1989, you could very well come up with uh, the unreleased op Ivy record. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> That was just like, that was very DNA level for me right. um, in a lot of ways. Um, and, uh, and i think some of the like you know again like coming from a world where it was all like spikes and shaven heads and flight jackets and and doc martens and combat boots to you know seeing this kind of west coast world where people are more like ripped up vans you know and like mm-hmm. cut off shorts and stuff like you know that that was another thing that for me felt very exciting i was like, ooh. Wow. Okay, California. Yeah, you know, like, that's that seems different, and you know, kind of slack and cool, you know, and um, and I think early on, chisel, uh, chisel, probably combined like our love of that kind of like Discord stuff of the era, whether it was, you know, Shudder to think, or some of the more melodic stuff that was happening there, with that kind of. More like frenetic like younger um Bay Area stuff that was happening, and we we cover i mean we actually covered knowledge by op ivy at some of our really early shows, and um I'm trying to think of what else you know, like even like all like I think those first bunch of all records, yeah, or still remain like really really. All Rise, Revenge, and All Rise Saves—I still kind of think are great records. Um, and anyway, just a lot of the ways in which that cal- that California world was um, was doing music, was doing melody and, and volume, you know, uh, melody and energy. I think we, I think early on, we gravitated in that direction as we became a three piece and we started really like writing our own songs. Um,
0: Hey, if you need an exciting new record to look forward to, Iodine Recordings, the Boston-based record label, is releasing the 30th anniversary edition of Quicksand's classic debut, Slip on Vinyl. This is the album's first time on vinyl in over a decade with completely remastered sound. This deluxe gatefold edition with Slipcase comes with a poster, a deluxe LP, and a 64-page hardcover book. The book chronicles the album's history and has commentary from Anthrax, Hole, Rise Against, Youth of Today, Papa Roach, and more. Experience this iconic post-hardcore record in a brand new way with the 30th Anniversary edition of Quicksand Slip. Available for pre order now and in stores on March 31st, 2023. And since they returned in 2021, Iodine Recordings has released almost 20 albums to date from bands like Stretch Armstrong, The Darling Fire, One Line Drawing, Jerome's Dream, Sorkar Fire, and more. Head on over to iodinerecordings.com for more and follow them on Instagram at Iodine Recordings.
2: And then, you know, just as one does, you know, your brain. Your, your brain just starts making connections your synapses are firing and 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 we started realizing that what we were doing was also not in a lot of ways like not that different from some of our first loves which would be the jam you know and the who and the small faces and that kind of like mod mod version of things um and that's how we kind of hit that next phase where we were like, we wound up in DC because we had all finally graduated. And, um, John obviously was from the area, but he got an internship with amnesty. Um, so he was bound back there for me. I wasn't coming back to New York, no matter what I was going to move to Chicago or somewhere else. So Mm
1: -hmm.
2: for me, it wasn't easy to just be like, Oh, you're going to be in DC. Yeah, I'll move to DC. Sure. You know,
1: um, (laughs)
2: We had friends, you know, I had friends from just over the years of seeing bands and et cetera. And, um, you know, right around that time, when I moved down there, I moved in to the embassy, what was called the, it was a house, but what was called the, the embassy, because it was the embassy of the nation of Ulysses. And, you know, they were on a, the, a similar trip with their kind of, reverence for sixties fashion and and et cetera and we really we gelled in that and then thrived in that world and and my songwriting i think gelled and thrived in that world um you know and then to to skip again to the like the final phase like the set you free phase mm-hmm. um by that point i was i had got, i'd gotten my my giddy some of my giddy you know kid stuff that i had hadn't hadn't really expressed as much um out of my system and i i went you know i started getting i started going through another real phase of like serious depression um but also just kind of
1: seriousness you know <laughs>
2: like I just started taking things more seriously I started taking my life more seriously I started taking um what we were doing more seriously and I started, you know, taking the idea, taking the knowledge that I needed to work certain things out seriously, you know. And, and and that's why I think kind of the third phase of Chisel has a more serious feel to it, to be honest with you, whether it's like, you know, lyrics, mix. Or actual songwriting, like literally like chord changes, you know. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I think I was just like I was just growing in a lot of ways and just, you know, I'm sure I'm sure, you know <laughs> I'm sure Belgiana Chris would have would have a lot to say about, you know, my seriousness in those times and I would probably tended to toward darkness about about a lot of things. But um but I think we were I think we were making advanced music to be honest with you if i can say that you know did Um, you
0: feel there were others like you at the time (sighs) you know um not explicitly
2: i think in the way that we've talked about this whole conversation about how much you know how many borders uh melt you know and how how many fences get straddled you know when you're when you're talking about like micro genres within within alternative music, Um, I think we felt a lot of kinship with a lot of people, but I I don't really think I know anybody who was doing quite what we were doing in in the way that we were doing it. I think, um, you know, I think, uh, I think if, if I could, if I could, point to anybody who we played with frequently at that time it would probably be the early versions of the makeup Mm -hmm. um but you know they were doing a little bit more of like a cod soul thing um where we as we were we were doing more like straight mod punk rock to a degree you know or more like just classic 60s 70s songwriting in some ways um yeah you know there were indie rock bands that we played with that we loved um we did a tour with velocity girl and a band from boston called fuzzy and fuzzy we got along really well with and not that we didn't with velocity girl but i'm just singling out fuzzy because um they were they were a little bit more of like a boston indie rock band in some ways, like Buffalo Tommy, you know, etc. But, but I think they had a lot of the same songwriting sensibilities that we had and lovely people. And, and we're I'd really, never
0: heard like, them. What label were they? Yeah, on? Yeah, they're
2: great. They're a good band. Yeah. I would. I recommend checking them out. Um,
0: what, what label were they on?
2: They were actually on Atlantic for a minute. I'm wow. Not, I'm not sure that, I don't think they spent, like there was a period, there was a minute when Atlantic signed a thousand bands and it was like Matter Rose and St. Johnny and uh, Fuzzy, I think, Velocity Girl. Yeah. <laughs> Velocity Girl? I think they were on Atlantic, yeah. Yeah.
0: One thing that I... Th- but yeah, um, I, yeah. yeah.
2: Oh, you know what? You know what? Here's a band. Yeah, Okay, I just thought of two bands... Go for it. ...that I think, you know, we didn't spend enough time with. And I think if we had continued as a band, we probably would have spent more time with and played more shows with. But the lilies in that period were doing a very kinksy kind of kind of thing that we loved and um, really appreciated what they were doing. And uh, jellyfish, which you know uh, was Jason Faulkner mm-hmm. um, were also doing that kind of a you know psych mod punk thing that we really liked,
1: yeah.
0: What I, and if this is controversial, or if you think, no, Tom, you're out of your mind, you have no idea, you're, you have, you're young, tell me. But this is what, I, I made this connection, and I don't know if it's true, and you can tell me I'm not. I moved to New York in 2000. I moved, yeah. and I was I, my first job was at 4th and Lafayette. Tower Records was mm-hmm. across the street. Other music was around yep. the corner, and I was a stone throw from Lower East Side. And I was involved Fuck. in this, in, and I was a punk guy, and I actually played a bunch of solo shows um, myself. But oh. friends started inviting me to Mercury Lounge or other venues and say, come check out this band. And it's their first show. It was the AAS. Right. Or oh, yeah. those, yeah. types, you know, the strokes, things start up. So I'm like a hardcore kid, but I'm getting exposed to this thing. But my, my, my mind was all these nineties things kind of got forgotten at like the year 2000 somehow or 2001. Yeah. And yeah. my history of chisel, I would watch those and go, they would have fit in right here. Like, it would have fit somehow, and I always had that feeling of, um, like, it was, you know, a little bit ahead, and there was this moment where those things have to happen for the other bands to happen, right? Everyone thinks, oh, that band's gonna be huge, and then it's the next one. But it was just, it was (laughs) slapping me in the face when I would see some of this stuff, and maybe it was just because I knew Mike and John and really well, and I had a personal Mm -hmm. love, but I just, it was just that the ending of it, the 90s, and then this sort of internet boom yeah. post that Do you, have you ever thought about that
2: oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah i mean you're not wrong i mean you're not wrong at all you know by the end of chisels time we, we you know we played in new, new york as much if not more than we were were playing in dc and we were very much a part of you know probably because i had all my old now post hardcore friends who were in bands there as well and we right. we're still but we were very much a part of the Brownies
1: right. scene
2: in the late nineties, which gave birth to a lot of that stuff. Like a lot of people who went on to those band to be in those bands were at a lot of those shows. And, you know, in our immediate wake, I would say like, um, Jonathan fire eater. Yep. Who, who were originally a band from DC called the impossibles. Um, also like a little bit fell into that gap. And then, you know, the Walkman who came out of that were able to carry the baton across the finish line or whatever. But, um, but no, I mean, you know, I, uh, I know that a lot of those people were absolutely like, you know, aware of that, what we, you know, our, our, let me just say like our world, like our shows our scene, the, you know, um, and you know, even, even in those immediate years, like it was, wasn't, a, wasn't that much longer that the pharmacists really took off. Right. Um, 2002, 2003, when like we were, you know, we were doing really well, you know, playing clubs that were, bigger than a lot of what those bands were playing at at the time. Right. Um, But, you know, it's just one of those things where like, you know, I mean, this is going to sound, you know, I hope this doesn't sound bitter. It's just the truth that like, if you don't, you know, the game that we've been talking about, the grind that we've been talking about, it is the case that if you don't play it a certain way, sometimes like, you know, you're not going to get the spotlight that other people will. And, most of the time in my life, that's been absolutely fine. Because, especially as the, when it has concerns like where the pharmacist got to, where I got to personally with with the pharmacist, it was like a level of success that I never strove for.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I never, you know, I you know, in talking about how like, there's no like light bulb moment. You just keep doing it, like. Our entire, my entire building process to the kind, you know, to like selling out Webster Hall was like literally like room by room. You know, like oh, we sold out brownies, well, we better not go to the next, you know, to Bowery Irving. ballroom un-
1: or Bowery. until we sell,
2: yeah, 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 exactly, or yeah, until we sell out brownies again. You know, <laughs> like it was like that kind of thing. You know, like you just go, you just go room by room, and until it doesn't make sense that you're, you know, not playing in the room anymore. Like we didn't, you know, we didn't have, we didn't come from moneyed, uh, backgrounds. Like a lot of those other bands did, you know, we had industry, you know, Nepo baby, Nepo babies is the new term. Yeah, right totally. Like in, in, industry connections. And, um, it was weird uh, being enrolled by uh, yeah, this was, or that person. It was weird being yeah. at a
0: label then. Um, because right. you felt that moment of, uh, this is the sound. Go and find it. Versus, right. this is the sound. We're gonna, cr- you know, go off of it. And um, uh, that's a story as old as time. But definitely that that yeah. time period. Okay, we yeah. gotta hear this. We gotta go find this. And it's and it's. Right. I don't know. It felt like the practice spaces. Like all of a sudden, that's all you heard. Like I was in bands, and I'd go to yeah. the practice space. And I'm like, why is everyone sounding like yeah. this? <laughs> Well, I'll tell
2: you, you know, like, I know that a thousand eyes or however many, you know, every single person who listens to your podcast is going to roll their eyes at this. Go for it. You know, and hopefully they will think, (laughs) hopefully they will think that this is the first time in my very long, you know, quote unquote (laughs) career that I've ever made a statement like this. But, But I will tell you that it is my belief, it is my belief that Chisel very much contributed to... A reassessment of the jam. <laughs> like, I like when we were do when we were doing that stuff. Nobody in the United States was talking about the jam. People would come up to me and literally go, "Oh, I forgot about that stuff." But you remind me of the jam, you know. Like, like, yep. like, literally, people had forgotten that that stuff existed, you know. Um, and I think that to a degree, both Chisel and my early solo career had a similar effect in just putting out into the ether Thin Lizzy, which then became, you know, a huge thing amongst a certain kind of like punky indie world people. Like, you know, if you ask somebody in 1990, mid 1990s, you know, or even like early, even like 2000, you know, if they knew what Thin Lizzy sounded like, maybe they would remember the boys are back in town, but it permeated, and I will. I, that's as like that's as much as I'll say. Like I don't, I don't know for a fact that anybody like ripped anything off that we did, or even got any major inspiration from what we did. But I do think that we put some stuff into the ether that that grabbed right. in a way that we are that we ourselves didn't. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that's that's like I, I kind of think what happened, and I do think that what you said about. You know that period falling uh, falling in a crack right before the internet made it a lot easier for stuff to to get around and, and go global is is also true in that regard. Like stuff went out into the ether, but a lot of bands didn't actually cross that divide into the next era.
0: Right. It, th- that's what I love. That's why this podcast is sort of around in that time period. That's why, again, you guys fit because not the sound, but the moment of it was an email on a CD. And then it, that's, that was like, you kind of had an email, but it was like you didn't have a website. And there was that right. discovery part. And then the label, you know, didn't get with the times and they didn't mm-hmm. do those things that, you know, it was hard. And I thought so much stuff got lost. And when you think about, when you said the word brownies, like all I think about is, you know, the show flyers and waiting in line. Yeah. And, and it, it was that moment. We weren't holding things that recorded moments. We weren't holding, right. like, there were photos, oh, people yeah. had VHS tapes, but it just, it's the, it's a, It's also not popular, right? Like 80s yeah. stuff gets covered, right? How many docs about Minor Threat are there? God bless Ian. There's so many docs right. about it. There's so many docs about the, the UK scene. But there's this just time period where like there's only a few people or a few things that were sort of documenting it. And um, yeah, like a brownies flyer yeah. gives me back those memories. So it, it, it's like well, you know- forgotten.
2: Yeah. And I I think, um, you know, this, this will also sound a little bit like sour grapes and it's, it is partially sour grapes to a degree, but I think that, you know, the explosion of Nirvana and, you know, what, you know, like calling that the year punk broke and then, you know, calling all these other like major label giant, uh, you know, alternative rock punky bands, punk. I think that sucked a lot of air out of the room in the nineties. Um, You know, it in the past, someone in Sioux City, Iowa, was, I don't know, reading Maximum Rock and Roll, reading some local zines, you know, going to local shows, like find out about bands that come through on tour. And, you know, therefore, like, if you were into punk... That would be your understanding of it. So a lot of bands that were, you know, doing things at the level that we all were, would sell records in Sioux City, Iowa. You know, um, but once you know, Nirvana broke and Lollapalooza happened and etc. That's a, you know, there's only so much, there's only so much people can take in. Right. You know, you can't, you know, you can't, you can't pay attention to everything. And I'm not saying that punk died at all. Uh, you know those shows never stopped happening and those zines never stopped being made. But I do think a lot of kids who may have gotten into that more underground scene got pulled more toward the shiny objects, you know, and and I guess that's just the nature of media and capitalism and cycles of youth culture and boom and bust and et cetera. But, um, but I think that's probably why a lot of the nineties, stuff that you're talking about did also also get forgotten because when people do think about the nineties, they think about, you know, the bands that played Lollapalooza.
0: Right. And there is a parallel to emo because that time period, the second wave though, I thought those bands were going to be huge promise ring or, you know, uh, and then the next era did, and that became so Mm -hmm. commercial. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was at a label where, um, the A&R guy gave me Bleed American by Jimmy Eat World. It was a promo mm-hmm. before Interscope signed him or DreamWorks. And he's like, oh, you like that band here. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> and then I told him, I was like, you know, there's two singles on this thing. And he's like, ah, whatever. And <laughs> it broke who had weekly meetings with the president moving forward me because he realized his a and r guy and i'm not saying i was i just i was the i was the age that understood what was going to happen and i just think people forgot the 90s they remember the 2000s and off we went um so that was that. I feel like there's that similarity. It's I don't know. I feel like th- just like everyone jokes about Y2K. Remember, we thought our computers were all gonna like crash. Oh, yeah. I feel like things yeah. got forgotten in that moment.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, a That's, lot did. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. know, this, this is an this is an interesting side conversation, but the ever you know the ever increasingly ramped up news cycle and etc it doesn't lend itself to historical memory i mean you know the there there are people now who i'm not even sure remember what like desert shield was you know the first iraq right you know like there are through lines that you got to draw it's not hard if you do like a little bit of digging but There's so much going on at every moment that it's it's hard to even find the time to dig.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's I mean that's honestly why the podcast started. There was no Mm -hmm. long form interview with X person talking about X. There was nothing, and I was like, I have to, I have to put this together. I have to. (laughs) I want to know if 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 I (laughs) only listen, that's that's fine. Um, But yeah, it 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 feels like there's not time and I just think that moment it's just chisel sort of ending you starting your other thing it's an interesting mind or time period where I think that's the last time that that happened that's the Mm -hmm. last time there were those like you said going to the show I saw you at brownies I'm gonna see you at ABC no Rio like and I'm not saying that's good or bad I just think that that way of connecting with people um is what i miss about a dm and i n- yeah. understand they both serve a purpose we're not in the same room we're magically talking through the internet or through the phone fantastic right. but there's yeah. that
2: yeah i mean like you know i'm not a luddite and i certainly am not someone who would deny the amazing things that the internet has has you know has given me um it's enriched my life in in un- un- uncountable ways you know but but what you're saying is also true. You know, there's there's no question that there are things that have been lost, and sometimes I really do miss them.
0: Yeah. Um, I have a few more for you, and yeah. first one will be cringy, and then the last will be awesome. Where Did you remember hearing – I have to ask this for everything. Do you remember hearing the word emo? Do you remember the first time you heard it, the word?
2: That's a good question. I, I was always into <clears throat> to uh, Discord stuff, you know? And right. Probably the first time I heard the word emo, like I can't tell you a specific time, but I do have a vague sense that it was probably said derogatorily about, you know, gray matter or white <laughs> totally, spring or, totally. or generally, you know, generally like melodic, you know, discord stuff by someone in New York. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that's my sense of it. That's my sense of it. But I can't, I can't tell you that for sure that that's the case <laughs>
0: that sounds exactly correct it sounds like
2: <laughs> I mean that's definitely what that's definitely what we came to that's definitely what we came to first understand emo to be you know like when I when I first under you know when I I mean I, all the way back then uh like when the when the when the embrace record came out the the discord embrace not the UK embrace um uh I think, we already were using emo in the vernacular, and that was like '87 or something like that. Wow. Um, '86, '87. Um, so I I think it was in the vernacular, and I you know um, it pro I mean and pro I feel like from things I've read um, I feel like Ian has said that it it started you know derogatorily in DC to refer specifically to, you know, like, Grey Matter and Embrace, basically, you know, <laughs> and Race right right. to Spring. Um, those kind of, like, revolution summer bands, as they call themselves. Um, and I think that, I do think that, um, you know, th- that Embrace record, by the way, if you want to talk about another band, like, w- that was a huge fucking record for me. And but I think that we definitely understood that from a distance to be, quote-unquote, emo.
0: Yeah. I was actually telling John I, I bought that record and writes at Record Convergence near his house. Nice. And the oh, guy yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. the guy was so cool to me. He was like oh, that's great. he goes emo one oh one, huh? And I'm like, Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> nice. Hey, <you> no. Know
2: <laughs> but, but it was it was yeah.
0: again, he could have been a jerk. He he could have been a jerk. Yeah. Um but yeah, those Absolutely, are yeah. those are I think that's I I love that um the way you described it, it was someone talking shit from New York about DC. That's fantastic. Uh,
2: yeah, <laughs> I, I do think that's kind of the first the first way that I heard it.
0: Yeah. Can you talk about the Karate Tour? That's when I got to see sure. you guys in in Chapel Hill. It was a house show. um oh, dude, yeah, Mike yeah. was like, "Hey, we're gonna go see my brother," and <laughs> and uh, got to see Karate and was absolutely blown away. And then getting to see you guys again and. Um, Uh, and the way John described it, I was like, why was that a, why was that at a house? Like, and he kind of (laughs) described that, that you guys were doing all sorts of venues on that tour, but do you have any memories from that? You know, it's funny.
2: I mean, I, I actually don't specifically remember that Chapel Hill house show. I, I do remember, you know, our last show was on that later on that tour and that was, in knoxville tennessee at a venue at a club but the night before was when like i quit the band and that was in auburn alabama at another house show and that was just how it was back then you know right you, you the circuit that the circuit that we and karate were running on was still a very post-hardcore circuit so you know there were indie, there were bigger like indie rock clubs um who were doing shows with bands like us there were gritty punk clubs who were doing shows of bands like us. And there were still tons of house shows, you know, there were lots of house shows, lots of church basement shows, again, VFW halls, you know, things like that. It was, uh, we would, there was, uh, you know, they would often be the best shows of the tours, honestly. Like, you know, it's, it's really, there's no, I mean, as amazing as it is, for example, just to bring up like, getting on stage at Webster hall and and realizing like that you sold this out to like fifteen (laughs) hundred people or playing like playing like one of those outdoor shows that, that the pharmacists used to do in the summer where there would be thousands of people, you know, that's, that's one kind of high, but another kind of high is like setting up in somebody's living room and having 50 or 60 kids just like right in your face, you know, right there with you. That is, it's apples and oranges to compare, but there's nothing like that. You know, that's, that's a real. There's no reason to stop doing that, you know, if you can still do it. So, right. That's kind of what we were all doing.
0: Yeah. yeah. I, I well, it was an amazing show. I remember someone making food. I just remember there being so many people in that room that you know I could barely see John. You know, with the, you know because right. everyone's just standing and. Um, Very, very fun. And Chisel was way too loud. Or sorry, um, Karate was way too loud. Um, Oh, really? Oh, God, it was so funny. Usually
2: on that tour, it would be us who were way too loud. (laughs) So (laughs) this
0: And then another thing John wanted me to mention before we get into the reissues and um, the reunion sort of stuff is the, he talked, I'm originally from Burlington vermont and outside the area and 242 maine was a big thing for me and Mm -hmm. um he mentioned a festival called burlington itis that you guys played yeah what i don't even remember that where the fuck was that (laughs) i think that was at 242 maine no way Um,
2: yeah was that was that like did you have to go kind of upstairs to get to, to the live room there.
0: No, that was, uh, Nectars. You had to go, no, no, uh, Club Toast. You had to go upstairs. Club
2: Toast. That might've been what it was. It was, yeah. it was definitely yeah. Club
0: Toast. Cause you had to go upstairs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I know it wasn't Nectars cause that was the jam band. Yes. Place, right. Yeah. Yeah. So no, but we, we played two, four, two main also though, during that, um, not the very early nineties, but you know mid nineties, like 90, I don't know, 94, 95, um, there was a lot going on up there, and we have a good friend, uh, who maybe John mentioned. This guy Colin Clary, who
0: oh right, was what was band was he from in? up
2: there? He was in a band called Brian, Colin, and Vince. Um, he was also in a couple of other bands. He was in, uh, but yeah, he was in bands. He had a label, um, and he put on a lot of shows. Good he really citizen.
0: Got Good citizen, right? right? Wasn't that his label? Yeah,
2: and there were there were other bands too, and uh, yeah, he was he he did a lot up there, and um, I mean, interestingly, it was like a weird hub for us for you know a couple of years. We played there at least once a year for a few years, um, largely because of this guy Colin. You know, he was he was really he was. He was doing a lot, and uh, yeah, he did this festival. Maybe two years, maybe two years. There was even there were even others though. Madeline's <laughs> Four
0: Color Manual.
2: Madeline's—that's the band I was trying to think of. The Madelines. The Madeline. Yes, that I... was his main gig back then. No
0: shit. Yeah, that was
2: his main songwriting gig. Yeah. How did you and connect with him? He went to Notre Dame. Oh. He went to Notre Dame, and uh, Chris and I actually had a, like a side. Like, there was a period of time out there where we we all did, like, kind of um, improv side projects where we would get together. Like, I had a four track and we would just, like, set up and we'd write songs on the spot, record them, and then we'd never play again. (laughs) Wow. um, You did a bunch of those with Colin. He was a really funny person and he would, like, he was good, like, riffing, you know, on, on, on an idea. So, yeah.
0: So that's how you ended up doing that festival
2: exactly yeah and I mean I want to say he did it for a couple of years like it wasn't just a one-off but I'm not sure we played it more than once right but we did play up there a bunch of times that's
0: cool that that was sort of a a place like I think John had mentioned North Northampton too like these little off Mm
1: -hmm. off the
0: beaten that felt like and I think you said earlier about that you're in that city and you're aware of what's going on but you're not seeing everything right you're not Um, And you're sort of really focused on supporting that scene. And I think Burlington's an interesting spot. I think Western Mass is too. You are isolated. Yes, Montreal's a little close, but you're fucking isolated. You got to drive a minute to get up there. Seven hours from New York. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that was part of it? That you felt that you came up there and people sort of... I felt if a band came up there, it mattered. And you sort of championed them that you took the time to come up there.
1: yeah.
2: (laughs) Well, I think that Colin felt that way. You know, he was always—I mean, we knew him again from Notre Dame—but he was always really good to to us in bringing us up there. And and you know, he brought a lot of other other bands up there as well. I I, I think that, um, in as regards getting up to Burlington, you know, we would have gone there anyway again because we had this personal connection and it was always fun. But there were other stops in Western Mass, right? You know albany or whatever things that just got you like more within the realm of a day drive you know yeah um, that made it a little more feasible there are those places though you know just looking completely at the other end of the of 95 like you know one of those with chiseling karate that was the first time i played in miami um and you know at that point i'd already been in bands for a decade and and going there successive times with the pharmacist like that, that is another one of those, there are those spots in the country still where if you're going to commit to going all the way to yeah. Burlington, like chances are, you're going to, you're going to also play not just Boston, but you know, well, I don't know. Uh, Portsmouth, Portland, yeah, you know, um, Northampton, like what, you know, like you're, you're working your way up there and you're working your way back and you're spending a week in New England instead of like two, three days, you know. And it's the same thing with with Miami. You know, if you if you're in a van, you're doing a van tour and you're committing to going to Miami and you're not, you know, young and crazy and willing to do twenty hour drives overnight anymore, you know. <laughs> like you're committing to spending like five days in Florida, you know, which is great. Like it's fun. You know, people people appreciate it. Yeah, my point in bringing that up was that people appreciate that you make the effort because not every band does. You know?
0: Yeah, you just kind of come in and out. No, and I think that helps the yeah. scene too. Let's talk about and last part is Numero reaching out and you know throwing out this idea, getting your stuff back up and out there, and right. putting up more stuff. What was that like? And how has it been um, thinking about playing a show, which is forthcoming?
2: Yeah. Well, um, let me start by saying that, you know, we we had broached the idea with each other, meaning the three of us in the band, about <clears throat> doing some kind of reissue for the 25th anniversary, which was last year, uh,
1: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, of Set You Free. Um, and though Gern Blanton is not, like, as active a label as it used to be, um, initially... I, you know i was thinking that we would probably approach charles you know about about doing it i mean he he was never anything but amazing to us um you know he actually gave us like he was like i i actually worked for charles i was the only other employee at gern no ever way. in history for a while <laughs> yeah and um you know he worked his ass off and and for his fans and uh he really did a lot to help us get going. And he's been amazing through this process because initially, like, I was just kind of assuming, like, we'd approach him, like, maybe it would, we'd partner up with another label, you know, it was, that was more currently active or whatever. But like, you know, it would basically be a, a, a modest thing that we would do just to kind of like put a, you know, put a period on our on our legacy and like tell our story a little better than it's been told. And
1: Mm -hmm.
2: you know, I, um, I don't think any of us really had any problems with like the sound of set you free. So it's not like we were keen on doing a ton of, you know, remixing or anything like that. But just, you know, presenting a nice package and just kind of like, again, like I said, like, for the people who cared, maybe for a few people who would be crate digging and come across it, like just kind of like document the legacy. Um, yeah. But then, <laughs> then numero got in touch and they were doing this whole nineties, you know, thing with bands that were, uh, you know, were our friends and peers. I mean, all, like all the bands playing on this, this numero festival, karate, tsunami, Ida, uh blonde redhead was originally going to, going to be on it. Like, seam was originally going to be on. Like These are all bands that we played and toured with back then a lot. Like it, it is kind of funny, you know, cause they're doing some more hardcore bands uh, as part of this reissue stuff as well. And originally they were trying to steer us toward, it was going to be like a multi-day festival and they were kind of trying to steer us toward that side of things. And really? I was like, yeah, that's fine. But yeah. And you know, like, I, I was like, that's fine. Like, well, that's fine. You know, that's, that's part of my blood too. But, just for the record of all of the bands that are on this thing, like we toured more with Seam and blonde redhead and possibly karate than like any of those hardcore bands, you know? <laughs> so, you yeah, know, eventually what the whole thing got whittled down, but you know, to the one day, but, um, but it just kind of like, they were, it just made sense. It was like, Oh, you're, you're grabbing this whole segment of, and by the way, like, again, like a lot of what you were, t- you were talking about, like, you know, maybe Unwound is the only band of that lot that didn't get totally lost. But even in that sense, that's because they were a pretty big, like, they were a pretty big indie band. Right. As it was. Like, I don't think, you know, I don't think the average history book is writing about Unwound, but they persist in the popular consciousness. People remember them. Right. You know? Maybe Blonde Redhead, you know, would be next in line. But I think most of those bands did kind of fall through the cracks in the way that you're talking about. And and I think Numero um, understands that and picked up on it and values that era, values the bands that they have contacted to, you know, to do these reissues for. And that is kind of part of what made it m- just immediately make sense. You know, it's not just that they approached us it's that they obviously have a stake in telling the history of a lot of this era that has been somewhat forgotten uh in their in their way which we trust is a good way because of all the other great reissue stuff that they've done right
0: you know? i love that that I mean, that's yeah. the, it's, it's what I've, you know, my, my career outside of doing this stuff, like has been sort of, um, my day job is my, my fun job. I, I, I have, I help people remember a song or a band or something they didn't think about or forgot. And right. these same kind right, of thing, right. like I think Numero has that same ethos and I just love that that's what yeah. sort of sold it for you.
2: It is really, I mean, that, that's what sold it for me as a concept. To begin with, uh, you know, John knows them, knows them personally um, better than I did. So they, you know, they approached us through him and, but I was, I'm, you know, very familiar with their catalog of, of reissues, everything from, you know, older soul records to, to obscure, you know, psych and rock and everything. And understanding that it was going to be part of, you know, not, not just like a bland, like hey you know let's get 90s you know kind of like retrospective. but specifically the bands that they are working with so many of them are absolutely bands that we had a personal connection with in that era that it told me that they are to be trusted with this you know what i mean like you can you can hand over your your legacy to them and it's in good hands so that 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 as a that's what sold it to me as a concept. And then when we actually got into conversations um, you know, getting into specifics and stuff and yeah, it just all, it all seemed on the up and up and I seemed to make a lot of sense. And um, you know, again, like to bring uh, Charles and Gurn into it, I had the conversation with him because I certainly didn't want to cut him out of it, but right. it was also like, you know, Charles understands. I think that um, he gave this like a go with God kind of, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, uh, you know, um, blessing. And and uh, I certainly appreciate um, and thank him for that. Yeah.
0: How did it feel? Just a couple more. How how did it feel to play, practice, jam on these songs again?
2: Um, not bad. I mean, you know the the one thing about me mostly only playing under my own name, uh, since the, since, you know, 2000 is that, um, I can, you know, since I'm playing as me, I can play whatever I want. Right, right. I've pulled, you know, anything I've written is fair game as far as I'm concerned. So I, I have pulled chisel songs into my live set from time to time. Um, some of them I've played, um, yeah, I mean, maybe four or five of them you know over the over the years um i've played a number of times so some of them remain familiar to me um it was you know it was the 90s were our 20s um and we weren't big drug users (laughs) so like our memories of that time were formative and pretty intact you know so Mm -hmm. um so like It's not, you know, it doesn't seem like a big, it doesn't seem like a cobwebbed attic or basement that we're like unearthing all this stuff from, you know, it's, uh, again, I mean, I hate to go back to this, the same thing, but it's true. Like in the way that, um, I can now put a, put a word to it in this conversation. Like as we talked about there not being a record scratch moment or a light bulb moment, you know, when this or that decision gets made most of the time um there's a continuum that you know i can look back on going all the way to the earliest bands that i ever played with and i remember it and i can see you know i know what i was thinking i know why i did the things that i was doing most of the time i i understand and support yeah, you know, seventy percent of those things um, mm-hmm. in retrospect. Um, uh, which is a pretty good ratio, <laughs> and um, and uh, I see it all flow. You know, I, I see it all flow. So, dipping back into that is not like it doesn't feel super strange for me. I mean, I've continued to play music. I've continued to play, um, in bands, and um, it's part of the continuum. It's it hasn't. It hasn't been lost to me. I mean, I got I definitely got to relearn a lot of the songs. And I'll tell you right now, (laughs) I have myself wondering from time to time, like, was I a better guitar player back then? (laughs) Because this is hard. Wow. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I mean, I'm sure that's not the case, but there's like it's definitely it's it's uh I didn't just strap in and immediately find myself able to play all that stuff again, but you know, <laughs> some of it, I could, some of it I had been playing, so some of it I could and others of it. It's, you know, it's a little like, uh, maybe not as easy as jumping back on a bicycle, but like, maybe like getting your skateboard legs back or yeah. something. Yeah.
0: Nice. What else about chisel has not been said, um, that, that, that you would want people to hear or know. If they were hearing about him for the first time, or if they were a fan for a very long time.
2: Well, um, I do think that you know, talking about the continuum, I think that sometimes when you are living in the flow as a as a as a member of a band or a person who appreciates a band, um, you know, you don't always see it in its context. And one of the things I'm psyched about for this reissue is to contextualize it. Um, and not just meaning you know not just to put not just to say this happened in this era and this time and here's what was going on around it i think that i have become you know a a a better and better songwriter as i've gone on you know i'm more in, more and more in command of the choices that i make you know that's just natural you know when when you keep going with something what i am really pleased about and what i hope other people hearing especially set you free now we'll also get from it is I think that's it's really good songwriting frankly myself and Chris I think Chris's songs on the record are fantastic and I think that um I think that at the time while we were doing it you know uh not to say that we were totally naive about what we were doing but but I don't think, I think I only understand in retrospect just how good the songwriting was. And that's as far as I'll go into tooting, tooting my own horn. But I do hope that people, I do hope that people agree.
0: I love it. I I think they will. I, I just think it's, like you said, this moment where it's get, it gets a light shone, shone on it. It, it, people may have known about it, but it, it's there's an opportunity now. Like we talk about the good part of the internet, it is now available, and people can consume this and and learn the story from the people that did it—not hearsay or not from some retrospective from someone else, but from you guys directly. And that yeah, starts and on stage. You can see it yeah, live absolutely. on stage.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, I, I'm glad you brought that up, though, because I also want to say. In regards to handing, you know, handing some of that storytelling over to people that you trust, we were able to get um, our friend JJ Skolnick, um, who was from the DC area in the 90s and saw us a lot back then, um, to write up the booklet that goes along with the record. And there, insights literally helped me better appreciate our own, our own records. Um, So that was great. And, and, uh, and I'm really, really happy that we, you know, that we, this is one of the things about punk that I feel very lucky to have carried forward is the ability, having made relationships that are based on more, than, you know, personal gain or, um, you know, interchange in some capitalist way or something, you know, having made relationships that, that we can call back on for this kind of deep personal moving insight, you know, into like my own work, you know, which is, is, um, is really amazing and wonderful. And, um, and that. You know, that's part of why I feel good about this story being told. Because, like, you know, yeah, like, I I don't want to, like, I don't want to, you know, I swear to God, this interview is the most, like, positive stuff I've ever said about, like, my own songwriting and my own, like, place in the history of of all of this. Like, I don't like doing that, and I don't want to write my own story. So I feel very lucky I want to make my story. I don't want to write it up. You know, yeah, so, like, but to have someone you so, trust. Like, yeah, exactly. I feel really, really lucky that we came as far as we may have, you know, gone in some ways from it. I feel really, really lucky that we came from the scene that we came and that we retain ties to it because that enables us to go forward with this sort of thing. Feeling, you know, feeling like it's all being cared for in, in, a, in a way that we appreciate.
0: I love that. That was pretty emo. That was a pretty emo statement. It was. (laughs) You were so skeptical
2: at the beginning, I loved it. (laughs) I was kidding,
0: but I was kidding, but I did want to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. No, I appreciate that.